Welcome to Meet, Act, and Part. A Masonic podcast hosted by Midnight Freemasons Greg Knott, Darren Larners, Todd Creason, and Bill Hosler. The views, opinions and experiences that are expressed by the hosts or guests as individual Freemasons do not reflect the official position of any Grand Lodge, appendant body, or Masonic authority to which the hosts or guests belong. And now on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Meet, Act, and Part. This is episode 46, and we're calling it The Return of Roger Van Gordon. Roger is joining us uh, once again. Uh, Roger recently gave a presentation to the Conference of Grandmasters, Roger. Is that correct? Yes, that is and correct. He's here to talk about that and much more. So I'm going to introduce my regular host, uh, Bill Hostler. Say hello, Bill. Hello, Bill. And I'm more irregular than I am regular. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll be willing to take whatever you give me. I'm sure our listeners will uh, enjoy that personal fact about you. Uh, so I guess we'll just get right into it, Roger. Why don't you uh, just kind of sure. tell us what you talked about, and uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Now, as, as always, these are conversations. So uh, if you have a question or a comment or whatever, it is not a problem for us to talk about. Now, a little bit, uh, first of all, I got to do a plug for the Masonic Renewal Committee, uh, because that is the the group I was with uh, to do the presentations. Uh, The Masonic Renewal Committee is a committee of the Conference of Grand Masters of Masons of North America. Now, uh, for your listeners that that may not be familiar with the Conference of Grand Masters, uh, the Conference of Grand Masters of Masons of North America, it's a proper name. Uh, was founded around 1909, so it's been around for over 100 years now. And uh, as you know, we do not have a national grain launch in the United States or North America. And um, so what happened was that the leadership of Grand Lodges started getting together and having meetings and talking about mutual concerns and passing along information and, and just general just conversation. That developed into the Conference of Grand Masters, and it meets uh, every February. And it, it's not just the Grand Masters, even though that's what the name implies. It's, it's uh, typically the elected leadership of your Grand Lodge, uh, together with the Grand Secretary. The Grand Secretary uh, have uh, formed their own conference in, I believe it was 1927, I think. And they meet at the same time and in a separate uh, room, of course. And they talk about their mutual concerns. And um, it's a three-day conference, and it's presentations, discussions, and sharing of, of information. As, as I noted, of course, in the United States, we don't have a national Grand Lodge. So this is an opportunity for the leadership of your Grand Lodge to uh, meet and discuss Issues and ideas common to the fraternity. The conference has uh, some committees of which the Masonic Renewal Committee is one. Two of which you're undoubtedly most familiar with is the Masonic Service Association and the George Washington uh, Masonic National Memorial. And both of those groups are also uh, committees, special committees of the Conference of Grand Masters. Uh, the Masonic Renewal Committee, I, I appreciate uh, Bill gave a plug to the Masonic Renewal Committee some time ago on one of his pay- Facebook pages. Brother got on there and said, just what we need, just one more committee of know-it-alls are going to tell us how to save Freemasonry. And uh, I chuckled. Uh, the Masonic Renewal Committee has been around since 1988, and we primarily work just with Grand Lodges. Our, our purpose is to uh, share information. Uh, communicate with uh, with Grand Lodges and uh, give them information, maybe even uh, some ideas that they could uh, implement in their own jurisdiction. So it's not a group that uh, most Masons have ever even heard of or, or aware of. The recent presentation that I did at the Conference of Grand Masters this last February in Milwaukee. Now, what I need you to do here is, is, is to, to think of Freemasonry 
not as as we normally think of Freemasonry. By by that I mean those of us are that are active in the fraternity. We like to believe that uh, Freemasonry is unique, and and you really can't categorize it as you might other organizations. Because what I'm going to talk about is looking at Freemasonry as as one of of many organizations. So so let's look at at, at organizations Freemasonry. The Elks, the Moose, Knights of Columbus, fraternal organizations. They're different, but you generally can describe them as, as fraternal organizations. You have your civic clubs, the Rotary, the Kwan, you know, some of the, some of the other organizations. And then you have churches, which I realize is, is a religion per se, of course, but it's community organization. Now, let's differ that with other membership-type organizations, AARP, for example, Greenpeace, organizations, a person belongs to them, they call them members, but they're not, they don't have a local chapter that, that meets once a month or so. so. So, let's look at Freemasonry as if it's one of several community-based membership organizations. Now, a lot of my work with the Masonic Renewal Committee is on membership development, lodge development. And I don't know if you're familiar with a book called Bowling Alone. Or either you, Darren, or Bill, familiar with Bowling Alone? Yeah. I'm okay. With that. I remember great. Bowling Alone from the Knights of the North days. Yep, yep. Okay. No, this is great. Bowling Alone, a book written by Robert Putnam. Uh, Putnam is a uh, he, he's uh, still a uh, on the faculty of, of Harvard in the uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government. Putnam's now uh, elderly; I think he's in his eighties. Uh, but he published a book, uh, Bowling Alone, back when it was released in two thousand. What his book was about was uh, a couple of ideas uh, he called. Uh, one of them was social capital, and uh, Social capital is basically a network of relationships among people that live in a particular society. So you can have, you can have a national social, so, social capital and you've got a community social capital. A difference of one community over another. I mean, you're, you're in your own locale. Uh, you go from town to town and you'll see some differences in, and uh, maybe how well it sounds kept up, how affluent it is, things as this. So there's social capital even at the local level. And that social capital enables that community or that society to function effectively or not function, depending on how much social capital uh, the community may have. Uh, another idea that he, he had discussed was what he called, or what is called, civic engagement. And civic engagement is the ways that uh, the people interact, the way they spend their social capital. Civic engagement uh, for Freemasons is uh, is living the life of a Freemason to improve the community. Civic clubs uh, and even Masonic lodges working in the community, uh, participating in charity work, things like this. Uh, in the in the local locale, the the PTA uh, working with the school system. Civic engagement, civic engagement, even the politics of your local uh, town council or, or county council, all the way up to our own federal government. Uh, civic engagement, when it works well, society's prospering. There's a spirit of, I guess, brotherhood among the citizens. And civic engagement, when it is absolutely dysfunctionally destroyed, uh, leads to war. And so you can look at, at what's going on in the world today and, and even in American society and you can see that the dysfunction of uh, or lack of civic engagement, the, the lack of proper spending of social capital. So what uh, Putnam predicted was that uh, he had studied uh, from about the 1960s up to 1990s and he saw American society because he, he was primarily discussing the United States, he saw American society fragmenting. And fragmentation is, in, as he views it, 
is a decline in, in social capital and a dysfunction of civic engagement. And, and what's interesting about Putnam and his book, Bowling Alone, is toward the end of it, he talks about where American society is headed. And he was right. He predicted the shape, what we view our country in today. He, he viewed the, the extremism in politics and such. So I, I guess that's one of the reasons why I've, I've anchored a lot to, to, to Putnam's work is because he was right. Here he was 20 years ago predicting what, uh, what the nation would look like 20 years later. Putnam came out with a new book here less than a year ago called The Upswing. And the upswing was, uh, was basically the, the, the impetus of, of uh, my, my presentation in Milwaukee. In The Upswing, Putnam goes back and looks at the, the data and such from Bowling Alone. And, and he, he notices that it's paralleled with another time in history. And that time in history was the Gilded Age. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, the last few years, there have been social commentary and, and even some historians that have, have referred to the current era as the second Gilded Age. And, and some things that Putnam drew out to, to make his point is that early in his book, he, he talks about American society and he, he makes a comment. He says a huge advances in communication transportation and standards of living brought a degree of well-being unmatched in our history. A wide variety of goods priced for mass consumption as well as innovative new forms of entertainment. Huge corporations produce unparalleled profits, but very little of this wealth trickles down. Corporate conglomerates are replacing local economies in almost every sector, including agriculture. And the economic power of corporation has, has in turn become political power. And then he makes a comment that public debates are characterized not by deliberation on differing ideas, but by, de- by demonizing the other side. And it sounds like today that Patton was talking about the last three decades of the 1800s. You do see commonality with many things in our society uh, that one can relate to that period at the end of the 1800s. Now, what's interesting is that Putnam believes that uh, that it's possible that there's a social phenomenon that society does wax and wane through, uh, I guess, phases, you may call it. And he believes that uh, that it. It's not here yet, but we could see a period of time and possibly a decade of which society will become more homogenous. People will come back to a center and we'll have another era that, that could mimic the progressive era. Now, why is that important to us Freemasons? Because Masonic membership quadrupled from 1900 to 1960. So, so Putnam's ideas here, and this goes back to Bowling Along, is a lot of the problems that we've had in Freemasonry is not necessarily our fault per se. It's because if you can look at Freemasonry, not just as the ways we as Masons look at it, uh, from a not maybe a non-Masons point of view, in that our membership declined, so did the Alps, the Eagles, the Moose, the Rotary, Kiwanis, the Lions, the Optimists, Church Attendants, PTA, which was the point of Putnam's book, Bowling Along, in that he came up with the title because he, uh, he had studied a vast, vast American associations. And he noted that there was still a great number, as, as many people were bowling today as in the past, yet the number of bowling leagues, again, since the 60s, had been in sharp decline. Hence, we were bowling, but we were bowling alone. And it was Putnam's point in the book Bowling Alone that 
that this fabric of society, these community membership-based organizations are such a threat in our society that when society becomes disrupted, when it becomes divisive, when these community-based institutions are no longer viewed as important in the lives of the community, the communities erode, states erode, the nation erodes. One of the things I'd like you and your audience to do for a moment and just imagine that there is a uh, graph I use in the presentation that talks about polarization among the politically engaged. And it shows the early 90s that it looks somewhat similar to what the normally distributed curve. It's small on the ends. The, the curve rises uh, to the middle. The middle is high, and then it smokes down again. So often it's called a bell curve. This one study that I came across, it showed that early 90s or so, American society was a, it still was a bell shape, but you could see toward the middle a start of a split. And then it shows in 2004 a wider split. 2014, a wider split. By the time 2017 come around, it had split into two separate bell curves. One on the left and one on the right. And we have continued to splinter or to separate even more so since then. So it's, it's easy to understand why we have issues in our country when it, it would be the extremes have a louder voice than those who are in the middle. Or if most people identify themselves not necessarily leaning to the right or leaning to the left, but actually have a stance that uh, maybe 50 years ago might be looked upon as, as extreme left or right. And it's at this time that Putnam would say community-based organizations are, are not deemed or looked upon as important. And you have what we have in Freemasonry, churches, Rotary Elks, all these organizations have sustained this declining membership since the 1960s. So Putnam, what he does in the upswing, now I recommend if, if you're interested in this topic, definitely you need to read Bowling Alone and then the upswing. Now the upswing, the, the first several chapters are uh, the chapters where he gives most of his data at the biggest point. And, and what he shows is that this divisiveness that we have is not just single source. He's got one area he talks about uh, what he calls party collaboration. So what he's done is he's, he's graphed bipartisan bills through Congress going back to like 1909, something like this. And what you see is each year there, there appears to be an increasing number of bipartisan bills, bipartisanship in Congress up until the late 1950s. And then by the time 1960 rolls around, the number of bipartisan bills are shrinking. And then we get to uh, around the 1980s, and it starts to plummet. We've got another point he makes, economic equality. Now, economic equality he measures as the gaps between upper class and upper What's interesting about this curve is that when I look at it, in my mind, it shows the growth and development of the middle class. Yeah, around 1910, and it's low. When it's low, that means that there's large gaps between what would be the social classes. It, it increases up until the time of the Depression. Depression comes, it reduces again. But after the Depression, to the World War, you start seeing it rise again. So by the time the World War comes along, it, it sharply increases. And it increases again up until around the 1960s. Um, he's, uh, he has uh, another curve that, that, he could, that most people, when they've interviewed him, they, they talk a lot about this curve. And, and that is called the I-We-I curve. Now, what Putnam did, if it, are you guys familiar with Google? Google has an app called Ingram. Are you familiar? You guys familiar with it at all? I've heard of it, Roger. I don't know that I'm okay. familiar with it. Okay. Okay. What it is, as you guys know, 
Google has digitized hundreds of thousands of books. Okay, so so what Ingram does is, for example, I, I typed in the word Freemason, and Freemason, the word Freemason is as used today as as often as it was in the early part of the 20th century. Now, the word Freemason went into decline the, the, the smallest or the fewest amount of times the word Freemason was used in books was uh, during the 70s and 80s. In the 90s, it started to come back, and lo and behold, it hit the peak uh, around 2000 when uh, our friend Dan Brown came out with his books. And Freemason, the word Freemason has uh, had a little dip after that, but uh, again, it's been on the rise since 2010, and the word Freemason now is used at its peak as often as it was in books, the early part of the which, which I find it, I, I find that is maybe a, a positive. Well, the IWI curve, what it is, is that he was playing around with Ingram, and he typed in the word I, and he got a curve. And then he typed in the word we, and he got a curve. And the curves were mirror to one another. Whenever there was high we usage, there was low I usage. And guess what he found? That we, the use of the word we, was weak in the early part of the century, 20th century, grew to its height in the early 1960s, and since the 1960s, the use of the word we compared to the word I plummets. Now, for your listeners, I understand correlation is not causation. Fully get that. But these are just a few examples. Uh, like I said, the first half of the book is he's got hordes of examples where he shows time and time again relationships, even even uh, personal relationships, kids' names. I went to old school with a lot of Michaels and Brian's and Tommy's and Richard's, Rick's, Ricky's. But uh, today we have a lot of unique children's names. And and he points out to that again, the, that that during a period of time, there were fewer names chosen for children at birth than maybe the wide individual, that would be an individual, names that, that we may be accustomed to today. And, he, and he, he, his comment on this is just that it's just interesting to see that. When you go through and you're, you're looking at society and you're showing that, that society waxes and wanes from, from what he calls communitarian, society to an individualistic society that even things like children's names you can graph and it's the same bell curve and the bell curve always they hit his his examples his study always found low in the first half of, of the 20th century low at the if, if he has data from the last few decades of the 1800s low, but it grows at the start of the 20th century, and it peaks somewhere in the 50s going into the 60s, and then it plummets again. And his point is, for us, our take is that on Freemasonry process, it appears, again, I understand correlation is not causation, but it appears that Freemasonry prospers during times of, of what Putnam would call communitarian society as opposed to an individualistic society. Now, one of the things that, that, that I, um, I consider myself a student of history, I, uh, I would have, uh, I've got a minor in history uh, in my education. I would have loved to have gotten a, a, a major History. I just couldn't figure out how to make a living. <laughs> so, so I had to take some classes in business, things like that. But I've always loved history. And, and, and when I was reading, I thought to myself, is this just a phenomenon of 
the latter 1800s through the 20th century, or, or has this happened before? And, and and if it has happened before, the, the problem Putnam has is because Putnam is an educated scientist. And so he's going to rely on data, and, and there's just not reliable data before the 20th century. Okay, but let's just take a, a, a an overview of something. Now, historians will call an era in the early 1800s to possibly 1824 or maybe going into 1830. They will refer to that as the era of good feeling. I don't know American society. Uh, was prospering. Yes, we did have the War of 1812, but, but there seemed to be a unity in the country. This is about the time at Talker, de Talkerville, uh, wrote the Democracy in America, which he was most flattering of, about the United States. And, and, and he even called exceptions to what he called community associations. These little groups of associations, either, either the, the political group of aldermen or all the way to religious societies and, and other volunteer societies that he saw as a, a thread in America at the time. It's interesting that during this era, 25% of the Grand Lodges in this country were founded, including my own of Indiana. Now, what's interesting about the end of the era, good feeling, especially if you think maybe it was the 1820s when it kind of started tapering off, was the fact that it was that about that period of time that uh, old Captain William Morgan stopped by Dave Miller's print shop with a book on Freemasonry that he wanted to get published, right? Well, what we know after 1830 in particular was the divisiveness that, that we had in our country, uh, the, the, the spread of sl- slavery uh, issues and uh, industrialization between the North and the South, what Putnam would call a disintegration of civic engagement that led to what became a complete collapse of civic engagement, and that being the American Civil War. So again, we have a period where we believe that American society was was more homogenous, deep division, Freemasonry, uh, uh, obviously because of the anti-Masonic era, but just in general, Freemasonry on a severe decline. We see society, American society break down. Uh, the American Civil War happens. After the American Civil War, there is a recovery. Freemasonry does grow again. Now, now I understand that that one of the, one of the critiques of this idea during the Gilded Age is the "quote unquote" golden age of the Charles. Okay, Freemasonry did have its place. It wasn't the largest fraternal organization. In the United States at that time, the Odd Fellows was large. Remember, when we're talking about the golden age of fraternalism, many, if not almost all, of these fraternal organizations were also uh, mutual insurance benefit organizations. Now, Freemasonry, there were their war is, if you say this, there the war beside mutual. Um, groups, clubs, organizations, but the, the fraternity as itself was not a, a fraternal insurance, as as many were uh, Knights of Honor, if you've ever heard that group, it, it was uh, insurance. Knights of Columbus had, uh, and they still have the offer insurance, but it was, uh, it was popular. Modern Woodman, which I'm not even sure they have a fraternal uh, organization anymore, it's now an insurance company. Uh, for Bill's sake, uh, the Ben Hur Society founded in Crawfordsville. It uh, was a fraternal organization with an insurance company. And a number back in, I think, the 60s, from what I remember, they dumped the fraternity aspect of it. And uh, But it was an, an insurance. And many of these fraternal organizations were insurance benefit. The nation was not. So that when the government came in with offering things like Social Security and our, our Medicare, Medicaid, things as this. There wasn't a need for such society organizations and those organizations started dying out prior to the they started dying out prior to the, the uh, depression. 
many people had to, to drop them because of the depression. And then, of course, after the depression, they, they were non-existent. But Freemasonry still was. Now, now another critique of this idea I'm presenting is odd fellowship itself. Uh, odd fellowship, as I had noted, uh, at the end of the, of the 1800s, uh, sort of the 1900s, uh, was the largest uh, fraternal organization. Odd uh, fellowship started on decline. Now, uh, I remember a number of years ago, there was a presentation at, uh, at the Conference of Grandmasters, I'm talking sometime around uh, probably 1998, 99, and the speaker talked about uh, Freemasonry and Fellowship, and his contention was that uh, the cost of Freemasonry, especially during the Depression, had declined, it's, it, 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 and then after the Depression, it had uh, maintained that cost, and that it was his belief that uh, men who would have become odd fellows became Freemasons, and what his belief that the what he thought was the elite of the Freemasons ended up uh, being the country club. Now I, I don't know if that uh, that's true. It may be plausible, but uh, but but I know that if you, if you look at some of the records of your lodges, yes, uh, many of your community members wore members of the Masonic Fraternity the first half of the, of the uh, 20th century, uh, but there were also laborers and, and, and other uh, uh, trades that, that were members. So I'm not sure that, uh, that, I, that I'm totally inclined with the idea that, uh, uh, that the modern Masonic Fraternity is really the Oddfellows. I think a lot of uh, possible reason for the Oddfellows at the time is they, they were heavy with uh, with insurance, with the, with the mutual benefits. And again, Freemasonry was not. Uh, but, I, but it is interesting to see that, uh, that Odd Fellowship was larger than Freemasonry. And then over the course of the 20th century, when Freemasonry and many of the civic clubs were founded, Odd Fellowship declined. So that could be an outlier to this whole thought experiment. But Putnam's work, especially the Epsilon, his point is that we're now in what he believes is the second Gilded Age community. The country is split, uh, not only along economic or political lines, but along economic lines as well, along social lines. And and so so we've got one of two ways to go, right? We can either spiraling down and end in some dystopian anarchy in a, in a number of years. Or, as Putnam believes, for whatever reason, either natural or, or some type of, of groupthink or some or, or many different reasons, our society comes back together. It starts looking again like a normally distributed curve where, where from a political standpoint, People lean maybe to the left, the majority lean to the left or lean to the right. When there's great, when there's an increase in bipartisanship in Congress, when there is, uh, there may be more equal lines among the, the social classes, uh, less of a division between social classes, and society starts coming back to that. It, if we look at the past, it would be a time that Freemasonry would be expected to grow. Now, now, what would that growth be? Would it be fourfold growth like we experienced uh, in the first half of the 20th century? I, I don't know. We, we've got some things that, that we still have to work through, of course. We, we still separate racially, of course. We, uh, we don't admit women. We uh, require belief in supreme being. How will those things affect a potential for Freemasonry to grow in the future, I don't know. Again, it will just determine what, what we see in the course of the next few years and the importance that those issues lie in the next few years. Because some of that's not going to go away. I, I, I remember a quote from Martin Luther King. I believe it was in his book, uh, Strive for Freedom, where he said the most, seg- the most segregated day of the week is Sunday morning. And and I think that that we still see that in society, and, and I don't know if that will change or not. 
maybe it will lessen some, but uh, I think it could still exist in society. The Grand Lodge of England got it. Um, you can find it on uh, YouTube on the uh, uh, Masons. I believe it's Masons Without Borders is the name of the YouTube channel, and it comes out of England. And uh, in, in this Masons Without Borders, there is a they have a, a program with uh, Dr. David Staples, who is uh, what's termed the CEO of the Grand Lodge of England, and Secretary. Uh, they've done some restructuring of their Grand Lodge, and, and he's referred to as the, the CEO of the Grand Lodge. And he talks about a study that they did, and one of the questions was about Freemasonry not admitting women, of which he thought they would get a lot of negative response because of, you're familiar with the situation in England, unlike us, uh, they get criticized often in the press. Uh, the Guardian in particular, uh, they got a lot of criticism. And he f- he was afraid that they would uh, score very poorly. Found out that that wasn't such the case. And there's other segments of English society that's still predominantly male and, that, and, and is segregated by sex. And they found that being single-gender organization wasn't the hindrance that uh, they thought it would be. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, might even prove to be a strength. Now, Putnam, and now he's not saying this change is going to happen tomorrow or next month, uh, but I think that uh, that it's slow to happen, right? It's slow, to, it's slow that we got here to this point, so it's going to be slow to come out. But I think if you look at some trends uh, with our more openness, with consciousness more visible, in the community, uh, some other things that we've done over the course of the last 20, 30 years. It is conceivable that uh, within the next 10 years, we could start seeing an increase in new members coming in that uh, will shrink the percentage of decline that we've experienced since uh, 1960. And that was a basis of, 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 of my talk was is looking at these uh, these graphs and ideas from Putnam, his comparison of the latter 1800s, uh, very early first decade of the 1900s today, and then what happened in the 1900s up to around 1960, and then a, a decline correlated to to Masonic uh, membership. Now, one thing that's interesting, I, I found a District, Grand Lodge District, Columbia. Because, because often you'll hear, Grove Winners of War. That wasn't what happened to the District of Columbia. They had records going back to the 18, uh, 1880s, uh, membership statistics, and it shows that it was pretty flat until around 1900. And from 1900 to the start of, uh, of World War One. So this is before World War One. The District of Columbia doubled in membership. And of course, during the 20s, it was leveling off in the Depression. After the Depression, it, it started growing rapidly again. And, and from uh, the period of, of uh, the 1940s, after the war, it uh, it grew again. So again, I think that that counts the argument of the war. But I think it does possibly confirm again that during a time that Americans are less individualistic, per se, and, and more communitarian, as Putnam would say, the opportunity for Freemasonry to grow exists. And that's, uh, that's basically where, where I'm, I'm at with this, is I, I think that we need to watch for trends. Um, not just Masonic membership trends, but uh, possibly start some new organizations. Uh, I pointed out an organization called No Labels, and its its purpose it exists to foster bipartisanship in Congress. Companies, for example, people talk about working in teams today. It used to be all on such and such department. Now we talk about teams. We don't necessarily call business managers managers anymore. Often we refer to them as 
uh, the business unit leader or the team leader. Uh, just the uses of terms like that uh, to show that maybe we are starting to see seeds of uh, of a change in trends. And possibly within a decade, we may see a, a change in American society. And if American society does start to gel back to look like that bell curve, uh, Freemasonry could grow. Doesn't mean it will grow. It just means that there's an odd, that there's the uh, reason or, or cause that community organizations can grow, of which Freemasonry could be one of them. So it was basically my presentation. Bill, what are your what are your thoughts? I'll let you go first before I dive in. Okay, well, I can see where they, where he came up with some things where we are kind of in a new gilded age. I mean, there is you know it's a lot of new and instead of industrial revolutions, we're in electronic in, uh, revolution, and you know we've a lot of new money, just like it was then. You know, a whole new situation. But as to Freemasonry, if we do get this new influx of members, which I truly hope we do, what should we be doing now? possibly be preparing for these new members? Do we need to start putting new programs or new things into place and maybe uh, come up with some new ideas for them? Because let's face it, some of the things we still do is still 1950s, 1960s based with a few more decades thrown in there. These aren't going to be this, these young members aren't going to be those type of guys. What do we need to put in place and what do we have to think about now to get these men and to make them feel welcome in our fraternity. Okay, funny you should ask. Here's something that I'm sure you, you and I both can, can relate to, given that given our time in the fraternity. This last summer, I celebrated what would be my 40th year, and I remember that, that, that not long after I was raised, I was interested in learning about Freeman, and so I was talking to some of the older past members. Remember, these are the old two generation, greatest generation. They had their club. They liked it, and they didn't want it to change. And so I'm asking them just all kinds of, where can I find this? Where can I read about that? And one old postmaster looked at me and said, now, Roger, now you learn the questions and answers. That's all you need to know about the Masons. Okay. So one of the things that I think that we've witnessed, especially in the last 20 years, has been the increase of Masonic education. And I think the internet has, has definitely helped that. YouTube, uh, podcast. I think there's been an explosion of Masonic education. 20 years, the last 10 years in particular, the number of Masonic books that are available to them. One can, can be a critique and, 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 and discuss the quality, but you still cannot ignore the quantity that, that's, uh, that's available nowadays versus the 1980s, 1990s. So I think that some things are happening, Bill. Some of it may be naturally, maybe because as younger men come into fraternity and have an interest, you're seeing some markets created. Psych education is one of them. Another thing that, that I'm, I'm learning that more Grand Lodges are doing are putting an emphasis on uh, new member orientation or what we would call in the corporate, to use corporate buzzword bingo, onboarding. Uh, Indiana, for example, we've had a mentors program for some time, and, and what we're about to kick off is a, a what, what they call a drip campaign. What it is is that for the after brothers raise uh, for the first year, every maybe once a month, maybe every three weeks, he'll get an email that will do a little Masonic education, tell him a little bit about some aspect of the fraternity, even one on appended bodies, even one on things like Eastern Star and Anorak youth groups. Just little things throughout the year to educate him about Freemasonic, Masonic etiquette. Just just all kinds of, of, of topics uh, throughout the year. His first year giving more Masonic education to draw him into the fraternity, to make him feel more part of the fraternity. The other thing I'm noticing is that uh, it, it may be not big numbers, but the number of uh, new lodges, more new lodges are being started today than I remember 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. So I think some things are happening, Bill, either 
because we're making them happen in order to meet this, what we see as a need of brothers coming into the fraternity or they're happening, happening organically just because we do have uh, a number of brothers that have come into the fraternity in the last 20 years that have some interests and ideas that are maybe a little different than, than previous community involvement, community involvement. 20 years ago, community involvement was uh, lodge sponsored a uh, summer baseball team that the, that the local community has. It was a summer baseball program and the lodge buys one of the teams, a bunch of jerseys. And that was community involvement. And, and we see that that's where more lodges are doing things in the community, not just visible in the community, but actually helping. And I think that we're seeing a rise in something else. Relief. It's like relief. Uh, in the northern jurisdiction, the, the Almoners program led by the Supreme Council of Scottish Rite is, is very popular. Uh, even my Grand Lodge is, is started an Almoners program. And I think that we're seeing the idea of relief, uh, again become important because, and again, maybe this is happening organically, maybe this is happening by effort, but the idea of brotherhood and that we're to take care of one another and we are to develop friendship seems to be as important as other aspects of the fraternity. When I joined, the ritual was it and all of it, and then some socializing that you did before God. And that was pretty much it. Yeah, run that business meeting, gathering those minutes, pay those bills. And that was pretty much Freemasonry. As, you, as bills, you and I joked, it was uh, uh, spaghetti on paper plates. You know, you meet, read the bills, pay the, you know, you pay the bills, read your minutes, and then you go to the lodge, lodge room and you go down to the dining hall and you have spaghetti on paper plates. And, and it's now become that, that's become kind of a little kick joke because we now see the importance of the table lodge or the festive board. And those are two terms that uh, I think you can look back at the course of the last 40 years, at least in my experience. And you didn't hear that much a number of years ago, if uh, at all. Uh, you heard that in, in Indiana, for example. You only heard table lodge once a year because the Grand Lodge sent out a flyer in December saying, hey, this is St. John's is coming up. This is an opportunity for your lodge to have a table lodge, which is a an old, great tradition in Sonic fraternity, and but we've gotten so far away from that, right? Figure on paper plates, but but look today, get on Facebook and, and see the numbers of lodges. They're just doing things like that. So so I think, Bill, that we're doing a lot of the right things because we made a conscious effort to do so, or organically, because we've got brothers come into the fraternity that are interested in those things. And, and, uh, and so those things have increased in practice. So, so do I say, Oh, we got to go out and start this number? No, I just think we keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> I think that we got the smart man. Hey, we got some, we have some wonderful young men in their twenties, thirties and forties that, that join this fraternity. And I think that they're transforming it. Uh, I've often told speaking to a group, especially of, of brothers in that age group, Man, I wish I had joined this fraternity when I joined in 1981. Because this fraternity is a lot more fun and better than the fraternity I joined in 1981. You know, it's funny. I was just sitting here thinking. I can remember 20 years ago. Well, it would be 20 years in June. I became an EA. And it wasn't long after that. You were Grand Master. And you gave a talk at the Fort Wayne Temple. And I wanted to make sure to, to come see it. And you were telling how your dad... When you ask him what the F and F and AM meant, and he says, can't tell you it's a secret. I'll never forget that. And we've definitely come a long way from that part of it. Yeah. So we're definitely making progress. But yeah, I think we've definitely made some progress. But and then what is some something else that you think that we may have? To, you know, we've talked about adding things for the new membership in the new millennia. What are some things that you think we might have to consider to possibly remove or maybe alter for these new brethren who's coming in just to make sure that they're I don't want to say, you know, keep them from offending them because I, I hate that everybody's offended these days, but to make them more sure and for possible retention. Okay. I, I'll tell you one of the things that we need to do, and that is we need to get more of these brothers in, in, in leadership. 
Uh, I truly believe what I'm seeing right now with the age group of the 20s to maybe 50 is, again, I'm seeing a Freemasonry. I'm seeing them espouse and talk about and dream of uh, the fraternity I want to join. And I think that, I think that their, their generation is a little different from, from our generation, definitely different from my father's generation. And I think that, that a lot of our problems are going to be solved, uh, of all of our perceived problems are going to be solved by the brothers that are currently in, in from the twenties to fifties. And, 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 and I really, want to see more of them moved into the, the leadership of this party. I just snuck into that as I'm 48, so... <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I think, no, Darren, I think, thank you, and and, and, and Greg, you're definitely that, yeah. I, I like to think I'm that's of that thought, yeah. I'm, I'm of that group think, if you want to call it a group think, I, because, uh, as Bill will tell you, there's, there's stuff that we're doing today that I was saying 20-some years ago, boy, it'd be great if we did this in the fraternity. Yeah, and 20 years ago, we were all beating our heads against the wall for thinking some of this stuff that we're finally starting to do now. It's amazing. It's amazing. It truly really is amazing. You're from American Northern Jurisdiction, uh, the Path Forward campaign, mm-hmm. uh, the, the book that uh, uh, Bill McMahon published. And, and I think he was right. He, he was, uh, we've got to recapture the soul of Freemasonry. And, and the soul of Freemasonry is about brotherhood. It's about a shared experience. It's about not reciting rituals, practicing the ritual. Uh, it's about being better. It's about those things that, uh, that's the, uh, that's the soul of Freemasonry that, that just like you meant, my, my, my father, just like I said earlier, Roger, you'll learn the questions and answers. You don't need to know any more about the Mason. My, my father asked him, I said, how did you join the Mason? And he goes, well, I hate to tell you, but I was solicited. I said, you were solicited. Now, remember, this is back in the day when you absolutely did not solicit petition. Because I solicited. And I said, well, you solicited, Dad. And he goes, well, I owe Herschel Blades. He was the, he was an active mason farmer here in my area. He says, we were talking one day, and he says, Walt, you've got two of your brothers that are masons. How come you're not a Mason? And he goes, I stammered around for a little bit and couldn't come up with a reason and thought, well, maybe I'll be a Mason too. Now today we wouldn't think of that as solicitation, right? But, but, but that was the way it was. Just like you, I, mean, I appreciate you remembering that story because that story is true about my dad. I was, I was, I don't think I joined Demo yet. And, and we lived just blocks away from the, the, the lodge hall. And I asked him, what does F and A-M stand for? And he says, I can't tell you, it's a secret. Because everything, that's, a, that's what they were taught. That's what that generation taught. And, and then when, when my generation comes into leadership and nobody knows what Freemasons are, what the Masons are, uh, it's not surprising. Because they retreated back into the lodge hall and my lodge, before the stated meetings, the guys would get together, they'd play euchre, they'd eat their sandwich, ham sandwich, go upstairs, read the minutes, pay the bills, make sure they squared the corners, and did the ritual right. And they had what they thought was a great time to them. That was their club. That was their idea of Freemasonry. And they loved it. And they didn't want to change. And when my age group came in, and we wanted to do more. They just couldn't uh, couldn't fathom what you mean. You want more? This is it, guys. And uh, and that's just the, that's the way it was. And I I think this is one thing too, Bill. I think that we're a lot more receptive to doing things, to trying something new, to to bring things a little different than what the generation was. That was in the leadership of the tournament when I first came into it. Teo Lodges. Uh, and I know when the, the concept of Teo Lodges, uh, traditional observant lodges for those listeners that may not be familiar with the term Teo Lodges, uh, traditional observance lodges. You can easily read about it quite a bit on the internet. Just Google it. 
there was some resistance in many parts of the country. My Grand Lodge didn't seem to resist, but uh, we have several TO lodges. Now we've got several lodges that do not identify themselves as a TO lodge. They have some practices, what would be a, a traditional observance lodge. So I think that we're more receptive now, Bill, than what we definitely what we were 20 years ago and far more receptive to practice of Freemasonry a little bit different way than what than what was in the 1980s. So so some of your answer, Bill, I think is coming either through maybe some uh, concerted effort as well as just organic because we're seeing generations of men coming into fraternity that are looking for a little bit more, looking for a little different experience, maybe than than what maybe your your my generation did, and definitely uh, the previous generation of that experience in Freemason. Roger, I in the past, I think, as past week, was in a Facebook conversation with my social brother Bob Davis. Yes, and, and Bob was talking kind of about the the numbers and the worry that we were going the way of the odd fellows and that led to and he actually said well how many odd fellows do you know and i said well bob i'm an odd fellow so it led us down a rabbit hole but bob uh was making the argument that the grand lodges should be at this point starting to look at potentially consolidating lodges and in making some weaker lodges consolidate in order to bolster Freemasonry as a whole. And uh, in listening to your presentation, uh, I mean, I, I would think you're you're arguing against that based upon what you're seeing with with the data. So I, well, I just wonder uh, how, yeah. how do you uh, how how would you answer Most Wish Your Brother Davis? Well, yes and no. Matter of fact, uh, Bob uh, gave a presentation at the conference and. And I dovetailed. Uh, his presentation was after mine. And so we got together, compared some notes, and I dovetailed uh, some of my conversation into his because his conversation was talking a bit about what Freemasonry was like in, in this early 20th century period when it started to grow. What I, my experience with consolidation, uh, determines what you're consolidating. If you're consolidating two lodges, uh, you just get a bigger, weaker lodge. If you're consolidating a weak lodge into a small lodge, what, what often happens is that the brothers of the, of the, what I call the losing lodge, the lodge that merges into the, the stronger lodge, often they uh, don't participate in the lodge. Now, one of the things in Indiana that, uh, that we do a little differently is it just takes 10 members to charge and, and we have consolidations. Brothers give up. I mean, we, we've got ourselves in this depression, mental depression, because of 40, you know, what well, we're now closing in on 60 years of declining membership. Uh, so we've got ourselves into this, this group thing, I guess, this stuff that, well, let's just build out. Now, now I belong to a little country lodge, and there's only seven or eight of us that are active, but you know what? We like each other. We have a good time. We're together. And we're keeping the lodge going. Last year, we had three candidates. And it may not seem like a big victory, but in southern Shelby County, there's still an active signed lodge because we seven guys, eight guys, like each other and have some good laughs and good time and good Freemasonry when we get together for a meeting. Okay. And sometimes I think we forget about that. I'll tell you what the real problem is, in my opinion, it's buildings. It's not brothers that like each other and a handful. It's buildings. And, and as we're about to kick something off. Uh, and this is not a new, we didn't think of this. I, mean, I, I first read about it, I think, in Iowa. And I may have picked up it in some other places. Lodge in a box. We were, in our rules, Indiana, we have what is called a supervisory board, and they're the guys that help you sell your building, model your building, uh, buy a building, build a building. And their rules are such that if they're, if you're in a, and this is primarily a small community, like mine, okay? Got a little community here. We've got a volunteer fire department, and we got a nice little community center, okay? That's attached, that's attached to the fire department. And it's mine. If we would decide to, to, to get rid of our building and something we're talking about, the supervisory board would give us permission to 
to hold our meetings there. And, and if we can show a proper way of preparing candidates and things like that, we could even do issuing, passing, and raising there because of this thing called Lodge in a Box. And what it is is exactly that. It's a chest of drawers that you've got all your implements, you've got your aprons, you've got everything you need for a lodge. And if you've got a storage area that you can put the lodge in a box, it's a chest of drawers, and, and your couple pillars in, uh, you too can have a Masonic Lodge. Now, is it uh, uh, the Grand... Uh, the Grand Hall of Philadelphia? No, it is not. But it's a Masonic Lodge. It's a group of Masons. Sometimes we get so caught up in our buildings that we forget it's about the requisite number of brothers that care about each other, like each other, have a good time when they're together, meeting and practicing Freemasonry in their city or in my case, a little farming community town. I don't know the answer to consolidation. I don't know. I think it's, to me, it's, it determines what you're, what you're wanting to do. It determines what the lodge wants to do. It's a lodge decision. A guy that believes in consolidation would probably look at my lodge and say, yep, it's only seven, eight you guys, yep, you guys need to consolidate. And guess what? Uh, there would be no freemasonry you know that it is in Iowa where they have that lodge in a box. We t- we talked about doing that twenty years ago, and we were told Grand Lodge would never allow it. You know how that was. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's because right, you don't. That's because you don't have a Roger Van Gordon in your Grand Lodge. I mean, come on, it's a myth. That's true, but you know, and I'll tell you, you probably knew him. Bless his heart, he's gone now. But Jim Demond in Fort Wayne. Yes, I, I was at a meeting one time, and he pretty much put it in succinct terms, and it said it all to me at the time. He says, sometimes, brethren, we're going to have to realize and start to think, are we Masons or are we real estate speculators? And I think that pretty much sums it up. Alan Castleman has a wonderful presentation on what he calls eras of Freemasonry. And what he does is he looks at buildings as eras of Freemasonry. He starts off with the tavern era, then he goes into what he calls the Town Square era, and we're all familiar with that, especially if you're, uh, you know, from towns of less than maybe 50,000 people or so. Go downtown, you'll still see, look up, and you'll see some old buildings. If you still got them, you'll see a square and compass on one of the buildings. You'll also probably see an odd fellows, maybe even nice epiphanies. And then he's got what he calls the cathedral era, in which we went out and built this large, single-purpose Masonic building. Because in the community era, we may meet on the second or third floor, rent out the first floor to the bank or whatever, drugstore, whatever, and the Masons and, and the other fraternal groups would meet on the upstairs floors. And then the cathedral era, as he calls it, we went and built these large single purpose buildings because these guys, I guess they thought Freemasonry was going to continue to grow for it. And then we got saddled with buildings that we can't afford. And so I understand Bob Davis, I consider Bob a friend of mine, and, and I understand his point completely, completely. But my answer is, the back is, is it a membership problem or is it a building problem? And, and, and I keep going back there. I keep going back to the problem is a building problem. Now, now on Alan Castle's presentation, his last portion of his presentation is that he believes the future is going to be on small lodges, a lot of small lodges, perhaps they're meeting in uh, restaurants, hotels, community centers, things like that. They're not going to be tied to these large single purpose buildings that none of us can afford. So, so I think that's, that, that's kind of where I would see with Bob. It would be, is it a membership problem or is it a real estate? Well, Roger, we're going to have to, I think, wrap up. We could talk to you all night, but it's uh, oh, I'm telling it's you. getting late in the tooth. Uh, we'll obviously have you uh, on again, but uh, I please, just personally, personally want to thank you for taking the time to join us, and I'll let Bill say his uh, thank yous as well, and then we'll wrap it up. Well, Roger, it's always great to talk to you. I miss seeing you on a regular basis, and hopefully sometime, you know, 
work will take us back up to the Hoosier State because that's ultimately my goal is to get back if they'll have me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I tell you what, I'll I'll, I'll see if I can see if not over the state line. We'll see. Don't. Don't take 74 in through Danville, Bill. I'm pretty sure there's a big billboard up with your face on it. Not to allow, not to allow you uh, back in. but well, I wouldn't know. doubt it. You know, I know if you go the other way, if you go 74 west, right right there at the county, or right there at the state line, there's the first um, exit's Lynch Road, and I know that's probably where they'd probably end up putting me. <laughs> well, uh, it's funny you mention that Danville's getting a casino, and I think it's going to be built out there off Lynch Road, so uh, that's something to, to look forward to on your uh, your next journey through, I guess. Well, I'll, year, never so. I'll never have any money then. There but, you go. Yeah. But Roger, it's great to have you. And if you come back anytime, in fact, if you want to be a co-host, you just come on back. We could always have you. But well, thank you so it. much. Well, it's, a, it's a fact that you got not hanging around with you guys. It's not just, I tell you what, we just do not break He does drag us down, doesn't he? Does, he, 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 does, yeah. he does. He does. I, I miss it. Greg's wonderful. I, I, I'm sorry. I miss it. Um, tell me some other time he's not going to be on there and I'll try to make sure I'm on the program again. Awesome. No, no, I'm just, you know, no, I would love to come. I love talking to you guys. I'm not kidding about it. if you want to have uh, have a show on sometime. Give me a holler. I'd love to come and talk to you about Dwight Smith. And I uh, love that too. Yeah, it's one of my favorite yeah. subjects. Yeah, we're yeah, gonna love we're to gonna we're gonna plan that uh, here in the next, I think, couple of months. Yeah. I'll get oh, I'll it, get it, it set it, up. It is an interesting story. Uh, so yeah, thank Darren. Thank you very much. Uh, to the listeners, thank you for listening. I, I truly, personally, really do appreciate it to, to get a chance to uh, share some thoughts and, and maybe, hopefully, made you think a little bit. Well, I can't sum it up any better than Roger. I'll just thank the listeners again for listening to Meet Act in Part. If you are interested in help supporting us, we are on Patreon. And I thank you again for listening to Episode 46, The Return of Roger Van Gordon. And take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Meet, Act, and Part. For more information about our show, visit our website at www.meetactandpart.com. While there, please consider supporting the show by sponsoring us on Patreon. Until we meet again, may we meet, Act, and Part.